Highways Voices, the podcast of Highways News, your one-stop destination for all the news about the highways and transport technology industries and our must-read daily newsletter. We've got a treat for you on today's Highways Voices as one of the pioneers of technology journalism is our guest. The wonderful engineer in Chatham who produced it. I hope he was still around because the idea we poked fun at back in 1971 wasn't such a crazy idea at all. Technology on its own only succeeded if it actually delivered what people could make use of. If you're old enough to remember Tomorrow's World on TV and the leading presenter Michael Rod, you'll need no second invitation to listen today. If you don't, then you'll be glad you've heard his wise words over the next 30 minutes, I can promise you, here on Highways Voices. Highways Voices, the podcast from highwaysnews.com. Fascinating thoughts from Michael Rod to come, but first of all, somebody who will one day be looked back upon as a legend in transport journalism if he's not already. It's Adrian Tatum, co-owner of Highways News and my co-presenter on Highways Voices, who, Adrian, you've got it easy this week because you weren't involved in uh, in Michael's interview, so you can just sit back and listen. Yeah, it was very good though, Paul. I, I really enjoyed it and kind of a, a real insight from Michael into uh, into into what he's done over the years and you know looking at the very one of the very first driverless cars for example fascinating stuff what news stories on our website have uh, really caught your eye in the last week well I, I really like the one that you did Paul yesterday I think on on Imrix saying that um, congestion halved during the last pandemic year which was really interesting and and there's been a lot of stories around that. Obviously, the Transport Technology Forum's data digest during the pandemic was brilliant. Siemens coming out last week as well, talking about a rise in air quality as, as a result in rising congestion again. Really interesting insight into what another organisation thinks about traffic levels at the moment. I think it depends who you ask and depending on what answer you get. But certainly, I think the thing for local authorities to look out for is how they manage that, how they manage that rise back to normal traffic levels when um, when things open up hopefully for good in uh, at the end of june also this week west midlands 5g develops the first 5g connected tram which i thought was an interesting one and lancashire cabinet agreeing a 45 million pound spend on the roads as well contract wins for galliford try and uh, graham this week as well things that i've picked up this week adrian uh, i thought an interesting one that I noticed from California, the American city that has banned any new petrol pumps being installed in an attempt to push people towards electric mobility. We see the way the tide is going and they've bitten the bullet. Uh, they've got plenty of petrol pumps there, but they're not going to allow any new ones. Uh, but another story on future mobility, I think is really interesting. And I'd like your take on this is the suggestion that pedestrians should wear tags so that driverless cars can see them almost communicate so that the driverless car knows what pedestrians, where they are, and, and where they're going. I have a question for you as the expert on infrastructure. Should driverless cars adapt to their surroundings or should we and the infrastructure be adapting to driverless cars? On the whole, driverless cars should be adapting to their surroundings. That doesn't mean to say we should do nothing as a pedestrian and rely on them stopping just because that's the way they're supposed to do. We should, we should obviously, from a safety point of view, 
we need to work out how pedestrians, cyclists and other vehicles are going to interact with driverless cars. You, you take London, for example, you've got busy cycle lane, you've got taxis, you've got buses, pedestrians. How is a driverless car going to fit in with other vehicles and its surroundings? I think, you know, wearing tags is, is, is a bit ridiculous, to be quite honest with you. We've seen um, tag technology work very well, keeping operatives safe, of course. But I think when we talk about driverless cars, no, I think it is the responsibility to first develop the technology so it can fit in with the surroundings, but secondly, develop a policy and the infrastructure so that we can rely on them doing what they're supposed to be doing. One last thing to pick up, Adrian, Jeff Collins from Unoptic, Dave Powell from Cubic and Neil Levitt representing Clearview Intelligence, all um, new members of the ITS UK Strategy Committee uh, setting the direction of that particular organisation. I know all three of those people and all all three of them really add a lot to the industry in in terms of their skill sets, a mix of real kind of business knowledge with technical knowledge, a real insight and experience in the industry for, for a long, long time. So I think that's a, that's a really good good lineup of people there. Good stuff, Adrian. We'll catch up again next week when we're talking active travel. So uh, for now, Adrian, thanks for your time. Thanks, Paul. Talk to you next week. Highways Voices with Paul Hutton and Adrian Tatum. So as I've said, the main interview on Highways Voices this week is Michael Rodd, who 50 years ago as a young man joined the presentation team on primetime BBC TV programme Tomorrow's World. He was my guest for a special evening social stream we did on Highways News last week for the Transport Technology Forum during the organisation's annual conference. The interview was so interesting that we actually overran by about 20 minutes. I'm not bringing all of it here. but some of the highlights of his memories of testing out new technology from in-car navigation and a driverless car to the first mobile phone plus he'll talk about when it went wrong and extremely relevantly for now the business case behind ideas i was joined by several leading members of the ttf and in this interview you'll hear andy graham of white willow consulting steve gooding the rac foundation director and ttf chair and darren capes of the department for transport they'll all be chipping in The clips are courtesy of the BBC and we start with one from 1971 when Michael Rodd drove a VW Beetle around the streets of Chatham. Enjoy this. Lost, driving in a strange town with an address but no map. 200 yards straight on at traffic lights. Now that's what I call a really good navigator. Clear, precise instruction given in plenty of time for me to position myself in the road so that I can negotiate the hazard or the change of direction with the utmost convenience. Yet here I am, completely alone in the car, and at the same time in the very best of hands. My navigator is this pre-recorded cassette of tape. On it are all the instructions I need to find my way around this route, and if I ever use a different route, I simply use a different cassette. It was a bit of a miracle. Here was a, a little car with a tape player And if you fed the right cassette into it, it talked to you at each point in the journey you were taking with the next instruction. 1971, no one had ever come across anything quite like this. We're probably quite used to our navigator sitting in the passenger seat, shouting instructions and trying to read a map and complaining. But here was something crystal clear, 500 yards, turn right before the zebra crossing. It was unbelievable 
How did it know when to play the appropriate instruction? Well, the genius who had produced it had created an electronic circuit which monitored how many times the wheel in the car went round before you reached the next road junction. He then devised an audio system that imparted a bleep on the cassette tape that instructed the little uh, controlling circuit how many wheel turns there had to be before the next instruction was issued. So, tootling along, this little machine, without um, being obvious, of course, to the driver, was going one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, pom, pom, beep, time for an instruction. The really clever bit, I thought, was that the duration of the beep indicated the length of time before the next instruction was issued. Now, so far, so good. It was when we sat and thought about the challenge of having to produce a different tape for each route, and also perhaps sometimes having to start from the wrong place. So I'm afraid to say, without giving it a spoiler, the film actually did poke a bit of fun at this device, and it makes me feel very guilty. I only hope that the genius amateur electronic engineer with the VW Beetle back in 1971 who made this possible was still around when the sat-nav started, when that gave him all the access that he needed to the information to make this thing work without a problem. You talk in the film about the, the suggestion that it could be used by chauffeurs uh, driving a specific route or training bus drivers and things. But of course, the problem is the moment you went off the route, because it was still counting the wheel turns, it would have got particularly lost. But it finishes off with the most prescient view, which was you, you, you were explaining that navigation might go wrong and navigate someone to the edge of a harbour where there was a sign of the car going into the river. But that has happened in many, many occasions due to sat-nav. So again, tomorrow's world was 30, 30 years ahead of its time. Well, as I said, the, the wonderful engineer in Chatham who produced it, I hope he was still around because the idea we poked fun at back in 1971 wasn't such a crazy idea at all. That was a something that was way ahead of its time and never itself became commercially viable. Did any of the transport-related features that you did on Tomorrow's World actually become, in the incarnation that you showed, something that the travelling public started to use? Hard to say, because, of course, what we were demonstrating was often prototypes and evolutionary stuff. But we did do, live in the studio, one demonstration that went seriously wrong from my point of view, but turned out that actually was a real benefit to the guy who was developing it. This was a, a machine created for guards on railway trains who found miscreants and troublemakers who were traveling without a ticket. The process that British Rail and their staff had to go through when this happened was pretty tortuous, but the intention with the device was to be able to produce a ticket on the spot, take the money, put matters right and have done with it and avoid fair dodging. We worked out how we could possibly demonstrate that this really worked in the studio by saying, well, we can't just say we're going to take a return from Newcastle to Middlesbrough, for example. We've got to show that we're doing this for real. So we put up a map of the railway network on the wall of the studio and I threw darts at it and said, right, we shall have a 
senior citizen peak hour return from buying Inverness to, in went the second dart, Ochtamakti. Meanwhile, back behind the scenes, the system was being programmed as if I was the guard on the, uh, on the train. It was a thing like a bus conductor's ticket machine, you know, those things where the, the clipper used to rotate the handle and it went whoop, and out came the, the ticket. And this device produced a, uh, a piece of cardboard with a brown stripe on the side of it, a bit of magnetism. And in the studio, we had a reader to read what had been put on the mag stripe. In it went and ran it through the machine and gobbledygook came out. Did it again and gobbledygook came out. Now, seven or eight million people in those days probably watching young Michael Rod was um, distraught, not just for his own embarrassment, but for the disappointment of the developers who had produced a machine that we'd been using all day to make sure that it went right and for it to go wrong on the night in question. Well, as we left the studio, the uh, disconsolate engineer said, actually, I found out what went wrong. You'd practiced so many times in the day to get it right with your dart throwing and all that nonsense, which was great fun, but you'd deposited part of the mag stripe on the reed head on the machine, and clearly, that's going to happen very quickly on a busy train when the ticket collector is handing out an awful lot of tickets. So he said, I'll put a positive twist on all this. This is an excellent piece of research that just shows we've got to go back to the drawing board and come up with something that, that doesn't depend on flaky mag stripes. And I think that was very good to take such a positive point of view. And the chap actually deserves a medal for not, uh, not wanting to throttle me and throw his machine off the end of the pier at Tynemouth. I think you do yourself a disservice, Michael, because you were the first person in the country to make a mobile phone call. I was certainly the first to do it on television. Oh, yes. What a moment that was. We actually succeeded in getting a wrong number. We had to make that programme on film, on location, because in those days, the thought of the mobile phone was kept under close control and wraps out of a building in Chelmsford. So we had to get a special license from the post office to try this test in a reasonably photogenic surrounding close enough to the headquarters in Chelmsford to be likely to work. And what a piece of kit it was. There was a receiver, as one would expect, connected by a very curly cable to a box which had a dial on it. And as I recollect, then there was another larger box with a strap which you put round the shoulder, which was the battery that powered the whole thing. And to call it mobile was a bit like the instruction I got from uh, the first man I worked for in the BBC who wanted me to take out a portable tape recorder to do some recording. And he said, Michael, you've got to understand that this unit is portable in that it isn't actually bolted to the floor. A mobile phone in those days was a miracle, but of course it was thought of as a phone. And could we ever have seen all of the applications that would be made possible once the telephone system went digital and the phone in effect became a little computer all on its own? 
Well, that's exactly it. When you think about it, some of the things you covered. So we talked about the navigation. We talked about the tickets on the trains, the cassette and being able to listen to things. And of course, you can listen to what we're doing. You could watch if it was still on Tomorrow's World on your phone now. And there you were showing off the very, very first prototype. I think I do remember that. I think I remember the mobile phone one. And I certainly remember somebody on Tomorrow's World uh, demoing a CD as well. Did, did you ever get a feeling when you were doing things like that, you, that you really were doing something monumental that would change the way we live. Of course. I mean, it was a real privilege to to do that. I had no real concept of the complexity of the technologies that we were doing. When the BBC gave me the job of joining Raymond and James Burke and William Woolard and Judith Han on the programme, they were looking for a generalist, somebody who could ask the sort of idiot questions that the majority of us would ask if we didn't understand what the technology was all about, and then somehow or other explain it in the way that didn't demand a PhD in in physics or, or atomic science. And I remember I came a bit unstuck, but it turned into a blessing in the end. One day at, I think it was Imperial College in, in, in London, a, a very eminent scientist said, while we were playing with a piece of kit that we were, we were preparing to demonstrate. Young man, can you tell me how long on your program my device is going to be given? And I said, well, sir, if I'm honest with you, it will be about two minutes and 30 seconds. Have you the remotest idea, he said, how many years I and my team have devoted to this? And I said, sir, it's obviously a long time because it is a very impressive piece of equipment. But look at it this way. In the two and a half minutes that it will be on our programme, it's going to be seen by more people than it will take you the rest of your life to get round and show in person. So I'm hoping that with your help, we can make sure our demonstration is going to do it real justice. And you know, this great man effectively then sat me on his knee and took me through a crash course in what the story was all about. The technology was magnetic levitation. We managed to demonstrate up in the uh, research department of British Rail in Derby, a longish length of track, longish about 750 yards, as I remember, where magnetic levitation really worked. Here was frictionless travel, not at a very high speed, but certainly one could see that there would be very little wear on the track or on the vehicle that was traveling along it. And this probably was going to be a major breakthrough for the transport industry. It turned up years later, I'm sure some of you will remember, as a people mover between Birmingham International Railway Station and the airport. And one of the saddest moments <laughs> I remember was turning up at Birmingham International to realize that it had been replaced with a tyre that ran on a similar sort of track format, but was much simpler, much more conventional, and actually much less exciting. Steve Gooding, who reached the top echelons of the Department of Transport in his career and now is Chair of Transport Technology Forum, you were nodding away on there. Do you remember the Magnetic Railway then, uh, Steve, when you were in the DFT? I absolutely remember. Mag Maglev was a big thing and it was a great idea. And unfortunately, it's not generally that pleasant to, to ride upon. There's a maglev in the Far East. The people I have spoken to who traveled on it say it's great. It's really fast. Absolutely horrible. <laughs> I'd rather go more slowly. Yes, I've ridden the Shanghai 
maglev. It is an amazing experience. Yes, it does bump along a bit, but you don't realize until the little digital dial, unless it's cheating completely, of course, tells you that you're doing 430 um, for about eight minutes on a journey that otherwise would take a good 45. What was interesting on the day that we were able to do that, though, the parallel track, the downline was out of action. And when I inquired, I was told that it was usually the case that only one of the lines was operating. So a miracle but not entirely without its shortcomings. Michael, let me just remind you of another of your Great Tomorrow's World moments. I've always had a sneaking desire to have a car with a chauffeur, but never did I believe that I'd end up with a car with no driver at all. This apparatus is capable of detecting electromagnetic fields. And here, in the area between the paving stones, it's picking up a complex pattern of signals. It's those signals which are the signals of the driverless car. For years now, the possibilities of driverless motor cars progressing down accident-free highways has been discussed and dreamed about. Indeed, some research organisations are now carrying out work on automatic guidance systems for buses. But it is perhaps ironic that Europe's first application of the driverless motor car is not part of an attempt to produce a new vehicle, simply to speed up the testing of the old sort. But as we know only too well on tomorrow's world, the greatest inventions sometimes have the strangest beginnings. Brilliant. That took place, you did that filming, Michael, the day before Charles and Diana got married. So that time stamps just how long ago that one was. And as you we alluded to at the end that was actually so that they could test cars without vibrating the life out of the driver that you had a driverless vehicle driving around a test track on a very bumpy test track to see how the car reacted that's absolutely right yes i, I was just thinking as i heard that because i haven't heard that for years paul it's obviously a technology that has seen the light of the day in automated factories and warehouses. One thing that obviously you couldn't spot on radio, but when you were saying about the magnetic strip in the road, you actually had, you could see the car coming up behind you and you jumped out of the way a second or two before it would have run you over. How did, how did you time that? That was very silly. Alpha male bravado. And uh, I deserved not to get away with it. no, Totally irresponsible. In the television industry's great defence, no director would allow that sort of thing. These days, absolutely outrageous behaviour. But it was an amazing day. The thing that I remember was that this was a car absolutely crammed with large computer-type cabinets. Every spare space in, I think it was a Peugeot 404, I think, was full of kit. Some of it, of course, would be the test analysis systems that the, uh, the, the, the manufacturers wanted to, uh, to record and examine. But an awful lot of it must have been the, the technology that kept the thing on the road. And in those 40 years since then, just imagine the miniaturization that has become possible and how little we knew about the wonderful, tiny, powerful units that would be available to us all to do exciting things with in these days. 
You mentioned Raymond Baxter, very famous piece of television, talking obviously about Concorde. She flies, she flies. It kind of changed my life a bit, actually. Tomorrow's World was brave in my book at a time when the world, or at least most of us in Britain, were awaiting the appearance of this amazing piece of technology that would carry 120 passengers at twice the speed of sound, far faster than anything had ever been before. And we were really excited. But it was clear that Concorde was not having an easy time selling itself to the rest of the world. And it wasn't just that it hadn't been invented in America or it didn't have sufficient German technology in it. It was because there were limitations to what it could do. What it did do, it did pretty miraculously. And everybody was enthused by the potential of this amazing piece of equipment. But there were alternative approaches. So we took the decision that we would look at how Boeing in particular and Airbus, who incidentally, of course, were also involved through Aerospatiale in the development of Concorde, were preparing alternative approaches to mass transportation that could perhaps operate more efficiently, and uh, though they may not go as fast as Concorde, they could get more of us around to where we wanted to go than Concorde ever could. Tomorrow's World became a different program after that, because Raymond didn't like what we had done. And sadly, he very shortly afterwards resigned from the team and left us to get on with it, because he felt that the program was there to promote British technology, and not to examine the shortcomings of British technology. Whereas a number of us on the program realized that technology on its own only succeeded if it actually delivered what people could make use of. And it was very sad when all that came to nothing, but it did make me realize possibly tomorrow's world had become part of a problem that we thought we were overcoming. We believed on the program that we were encouraging young people particularly to take an interest in engineering and in science and in manufacture and creating wealth and employment to enhance the well-being of the country. It did appear that tomorrow's world had actually become a bit of a barrier to that progress because developers began to think that getting their thing onto tomorrow's world was almost the end of the game. But after that, the job had been, had been successful, they had moved on, and they were doing something else. In other words, it was not encouraging people to actually go through the whole process of market analysis, of working out whether something was interesting technically, certainly, but also was meeting a need that was sellable to the rest of the world. I want to almost play back what you just said to everyone who I know who develops a new piece of kit and I say, well, what's the business case for this? What are the benefits? Why would people buy it? Particularly if they're a local authority that doesn't have much resources, particularly if they're a driver of a, an older car, hasn't got much money. The example of Concorde is, is magnificent. The engineering there is magnificent. Concorde was an opportunity, an aspiration. I think all of us wanted to fly in Concorde, but knew that the chances of our ever being able to do that were very slim. When push comes to shove, I think we took the right approach in questioning whether there was, as Andy calls it, a real business case, or whether the project wasn't just something 
that engineers who worked on it would be incredibly proud of. It is human nature to establish silos of interest, particular things that you love and do well or have to do because that's how you earn a living. And the thought of moving on and actually collaborating with what some something might see as the as the opposition is a serious constraint in almost everything we do. I'm reading George Dyson's book about Alan Turing and all of those who helped to develop the amazing machines that we are now dependent upon. And it is an interesting story in which the mathematicians didn't agree with the engineers, the engineers didn't like the logisticians, and various departments that actually finally came together took years to do that because vested interests and particular prejudices were locked in to the way our minds work. And I do think in, in almost all areas of life, that is a major issue that if we're really going to move forward, we've got to take more seriously. Not only fascinating, but a thoroughly lovely bloke as well. We could have talked to him all night. That's Michael Rod on Highways Voices, and we didn't even get to talk about lots of things we wanted to, including his memories of anchoring the BBC's coverage of the first space shuttle mission. Well, we'll have to get him back again at some point. That's it for this week's Highways Voices. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did putting it together. Adrian and I will be back next week and we'll catch you then. Highways Voices. Join us again next week for more insights from those that matter in the industry. 